Good news. Uh, we are live here. This is our uh, race relations roundtable. So everybody out there, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we're going to give people a chance to kind of jump in here, but you can see we've got this very eclectic group of people that can answer some of your questions tonight. Uh, I think it's perfect timing. You know, today was George Floyd's funeral. We know the conversation that his death has kicked off. And so you can see the people here on screen joining us tonight, different backgrounds, different races. So I think it's a really, really important conversation for us to have. Also joining us via phone, um, we couldn't do it via Zoom, but we've got Cass County Sheriff Jesse Johnner to talk about uh, what many people are talking about right now across America is race and relations with police and law enforcement, police department. So again, if you've got questions, um, just put them here in Facebook. The one thing that, that I want to do tonight, folks, for me is just a lot of listening. Uh, we're going to go around initially kind of the table, if you will, and talk about what they see as the biggest issue in race relations in America today. And then if they've got some ideas about what we can be doing to develop uh, what I would call a more perfect union here in the great United States of America. One thing I want people locally to know is that we've had uh, several elected leaders that have stood up over the past couple of weeks and say, hey, we want to have this conversation. We want, if you want to have the conversation, let us know. We want to be a part of it. Just so you know, we did reach out to those people. Uh, we either got a no or no response. I think it's important for the people here locally to know that. I'm not going to name any of those people. They know who they are, um, but I think it's important. That's why, Sheriff John, we appreciate you accepting the invitation. So um, we're going to go with ladies first, guys, and let Cindy Gomez-Shemp go first tonight. But Cindy, what I, what I want to do with everybody initially is just, as you look across America right now, what's the biggest race relations challenge that you see? How do we solve it? Thank you for having me on this uh, roundtable, Chris. I think it's a very important conversation that we need to have. Um, I've been doing um, organizing, uh, media work, uh, especially with regard to race relations for over a decade now. And we are in a unique moment in our history in the United States. Um, I've never seen our country more divided and I have never in my lifetime experienced something where so many people, innocent people, have been wrapped up in this, it's, it's a, a media war, it's a psychological war, it's um, something that is, it's taken hold of our country. And the biggest problem I see is separating the wheat from the chaff, figuring out what is the right thing to do in this moment and what is the wrong thing. And there is a right and a wrong in this situation. I think that people are very confused because they feel that they need to stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, with supporting um, people of color that have been the victims of brutality in our country, and I understand them. I know why they feel that way. But at the same time, I think that we have to look deeper into what and who is organizing the riots, the violence, and promoting a movement to defund our public institutions, such as our police, ICE, etc. Because 
we are going down a very uh, historic and life-changing road for this entire country. What we do right now will have an impact for a decade or longer in terms of what our law enforcement looks like. And we really need to make a decision about that together. I don't want some uh, organization in Minneapolis or in some other large city doing that for me. Got it. So uh, if you can guys do as well, just put some context of what you see as some steps of action in there. Vaughn, you're kind of new to our Facebook community here. So I'm going to go to you next. If you want to give people just a little bit about your background. And the reason I was excited to have you on is not only since you call me Chachi, but also because of the fact that uh, just, you know, your experience, man, you and I have had some great conversations about race relations and what you've been doing in the streets, literally. So Vaughn, your thoughts on biggest challenge? How do you solve it? So, you know, I, I, I apologize, Chris, but it, I, I, would, I, I would never give you the biggest challenge because it's too complex to, to make it one thing that way. Uh, I think this is a, a complex problem that we've had in our country since its inception. And there's a confluence of different things that have to be working together, to have to work together in order for us to perfect the union that you talk about that I think we all want. Um, so just a little bit of background. Uh, like I said before, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, went to school in California, went to grad school in uh, Chicago area. You know, I've lived all over the country, uh, both east, west, uh, south, a little, little bit overseas. Most recently, I've been working on uh, really the number one issue in Chicago, and that's uh, gun violence and community violence in Chicago. So, um, you know, we're really trying to build relationships with people who are most vulnerable to gun violence in Chicago um, and, and, and help them go down a path uh, uh, to the legal economy. I think, you know, we can't separate whether it's, you know, black on black crime, whether it's state sponsored crime, none of that is in isolation. It's all part of the history of our country and how our neighborhoods were built, the segregation that has been orchestrated, um, you know, uh, institutionalized servitude for, from 1619 to 1965. There's no way you can tell me that you can have, you know, black people in particular uh, enslaved in some kind of way for over 300 years and not see them in a particular way, not for us to see ourselves in a particular way. So all of those things play a role in why violence happen, happens, whether it's black on black or other. Um, and you know, we, we have to take th those things into consideration can, and, uh, and understand that that's the context that we're in. Let me ask you this, man, because this is a question that I have asked myself a lot and never really got an answer. And since you're in the heat of it, maybe you can shed some light on it. But like, for example, over the weekend, I think I saw an article where in Chicago, you had one of the deadliest weekends in like 60 years. So why has it been such a pervasive problem for so long and why has it not been solved faster? Yeah, so I think that you have a confluence of things uh, going on right now. So Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the country. Uh, you, so it was, there's a lot of, you know, organized crime and still a lot of uh, street organizations, you know, fighting for turf, you know, around whether it's gun sales or, or drug sales. Um, and then you layer on top of that um, COVID-19. So with COVID-19, that means people are losing their jobs. That means that uh, people are, anxiety is high. That means even people working from home who have anxiety may be using drugs more. So I, I guarantee you 
people who are selling drugs are probably selling more drugs right now, which can, can have an influence on violence. And then, then you, you layer on top of that George Floyd. And, you know, George Floyd is, in, in the reaction to that is not just George Floyd. It's those type of things happening for a long period of time. And, you know, the, the history that I've laid out for you is that, you know, you hear black people saying that, you know, this country has their knee on our neck and they've had it on our neck for a long time. So the reaction is more about all of that versus, you know, the one or three uh, uh, incidents that we've had uh, in the in the recent recent month. Yeah, thank you, Vaughn. Uh, Mr. Davis, we'll go to you next because Vaughn brought up, you know, that date we're hearing a lot about as of late 1619. Um, you and the Americans were here long before that. So just your point of view on uh, you know, some of the challenges from race relations and what you'd like to see to make things better in a more perfect union. Sure. Um, well, thanks, Chris. And, um, and also uh, my new newfound friends here for, for being part of this tonight. Uh, it's, it's a good thing, Chris. And I like the, I like the nickname Chachi too. So I might, <laughs> might be, I might be calling you that too. So. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You got tagged. So. Um, I love my man Vaughn, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah, we'll believe Vaughn. Yeah. <laughs> no, but as you know, um, you know we've we've been in this fight and uh, challenge for a long, long time. Uh, I'd say, you know, when we say um, first contact, you know, when they first landed, as we say, uh, that's kind of where it all started. Uh, obviously, it's it's seen its ebbs and flows over the over the decades and centuries. But um, today, what I see and um, what I see with our country is a lot of emotion. You know, we're, we're very an emotional state of mind right now in America. And when I think about emotions, I think about, you know, fear. Fear is a big one uh, that I see with people. Confusion, fear, uh, the violence, uh, war, because we're constantly in this, in the whole world, we're always at war with something, you know, so there's always this violence thing. And I think the other one is trust, you know, the trust. Uh, so those are some emotions that I think that are, really on the table right now with, with America, certainly with, with, my, with my people, with our nations, the 575, 74 tribes in America that are fairly recognized, you know, there's a lot of that going on within our tribal nations. So, and that's systemic, that's been historic uh, through broken treaties with the federal government. So those things are real, but how do we change those things? I think what you just did in uh, Fargo here over the past uh, week or so, when you folks sat down and, and talked about it. And that, and that came through leadership. <clears throat> and uh, it was the same thing we did after DAPL. You know, when, uh, when DAPL was kind of in the height of its, um, of its movement, uh, new Governor Bergen came along and asked me, what, what do we need to do? I said, we need to go down there. We need to go down there and we need to listen. And fortunately, uh, like he, he mo does all the time, most of the time, listens to my counsel and, um, and we did that. So we sat for four hours. Um, it, it felt like, you know, a little bit shorter than that for some reason. But, you know, I, I prepared the government that you're probably going to get a lot of this. You know, they're probably going to you're probably going to get scolded. And are you prepared to do that? They're going to scold you from from a lot of angles, from history to contemporary to a lot of things. So it's just best to listen. And, and he did a marvelous job of doing that. And here's what happened within that four hours or so. It it changed. You know. The people's mindset, my relatives changed. I mean, it, 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 it opened their eyes that, you know, we can respect him because he's here. You know, I, it, was, it was commented to me by elder there, um, Patty Kelly, that this is the first time the governor's ever been to Cannibal. I didn't know that. 
I thought, what an amazing thing. So I think what you did with Fargo is sitting down and kind of hashing it out, so to speak. And you got to let those motions, you know, um, let it, let them, let them live, you know, let them, let them go through the process of those emotions because people want to be heard, especially us as minorities. You know, sometimes we're really good at stuffing things and we're, we're tough, you know, nothing, you know, I'm, I'm a warrior, but, but we got to let those motions come out and get them off our, get them off our chest, off our shoulders, so to speak. And once you do that, I think you're going to find solutions and commonalities and, now you're going to be able to articulate what some solutions are. So that's kind of how I see things for right now, Chris. Thank you, Scott. And guys, if any time tonight, you know, want to get questions for one of the, the guests here, please just pipe in and, and do that. Leon, sometimes for some reason, bro, you, you're upside down right now. I don't know what happened, but if you can flip yourself back up, right, that would be great. And uh, Raheem, we'll go to you, my friend. Again, just, you know, your thoughts on challenges and solutions. I'm good. I from what I can see, I'm fine. All right, I, I apologize, man, because for some reason we've got you. I'll see if I can figure it out. I'll, I mean, he's right side up on my side. From oh, what he I'm is? seeing. Are y'all yeah. seeing? Okay. So, uh, Raheem, you're up. I'm, all right. So I think um I think everything that's been said here is definitely definitely true. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that we're all approaching this. Uh, with a different angle. So I want to I want to build off of some of the things Vaughn talked about and what he, he, he alluded to our history as a country and we can't ignore it. It's very real. But the thing is, some people are under under the impression that it is history, but it's not. It's ongoing. Um, our country is still extremely segregated. And even in places where you wouldn't expect it, if you ever look like a, a kind of racial neighborhood map in New York City, it's extraordinarily segregated. They're just close segregated neighborhoods. So like we still aren't sharing the same communities. We still are in very much isolation. And these then this is the environment that allows racism to to, to proliferate. This is, is, is everywhere I've ever gone that I've ever met races and I've actually talked down with or sat down and talked to white supremacists, they always come from isolated communities. Even if it's from a city, it's an isolated community within it. So I think a lot of people have seen our cities grow and they become these like these seemingly multicultural bastions of, you know, progressivism, but they're that's that's literally just a facade. It's not how it actually looks. Like you there's these crazy maps. You can see the same thing in Chicago and we and uh because our minority community is so small here in North Dakota, it's not as pronounced, but it, 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 it is starting to develop even on North Fargo. So it's kind of like we see these things happening. And the fact of the matter is we still don't live next door to each other. We still don't send our kids to school together. We are still very much a segregated country. And it is because we are still healing from our past. Uh, growing up in the South, I, I'm from a town called Thomasville, Georgia. It was a segregated town. Uh, we had something called the Black Y and the White Y, the YMCA, because they were segregated. And we called them that well into my childhood, even into the 90s, well after segregation ended. And there's still a black side of town and a white side of town. And yes, there's the city has made a lot of progress, but it's like those wounds don't just disappear. Like neighborhoods just don't integrate. People don't just meet each other and become friends. Like we still have these enclaves in society. And it is a very difficult uh, thing to fix. I'm not here to tell you uh, any diversity quotas. Like, I'm not going to show up to your community and tell you you don't have enough Black people or you don't have enough Hispanics. That's not that's not what I'm in the business of. But what I, what I am trying to say is Americans need 
to meet each other. They need to learn each other. The urban-rural divide, if you look at it, racial divide, income divide, we don't know each other anymore. We don't know our neighbors. We don't know their, I don't know if community policing is a thing. I, I haven't met a, a community police officer in a while. I have no idea who patrols my neighborhood. Like none of these things are happening in our country anymore and it's a problem and it's, and it's starting to bubble up and that's what you can see. Let me, let me, can I, I want to respond a little bit Please. to what uh, Raheem said. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're on the same page. But I think one of the things that we have to be honest about is, you know, how redlining in our country, you know, that was really orchestrated by white people. So it, the reality is white people don't really want to live with other people. They want to live by themselves. And redlining orchestrated that. So when you look at suburban communities, if you look at the history of Chicago and how it became segregated, it was deliberate. And so we have to be I, honest about that part. I'm not, I'm not for, I'm not going to deny anything about the history. Right, <laughs> right, I'm not, right. I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with you. I'm just kind of add, I'm, I'm feel like I'm adding to what you're saying. Okay. Uh, so what I'm saying is that, um, it, you know, we have to face that reality. So if we want to live in integrated communities, that that's really more, us wanting to do that voluntarily versus it's not going to be forced. But for me, like, I don't, I'm not necessarily as interested in integrated communities. I'm interested in learning the true history of our country so that you know about institutional servitude, that you know about convict leasing and you know about Jim Crow and how long that lasted and what that meant. You know about the Homestead Act and how, you know, white people got land. Like there's homesteaders that were in uh, North Dakota, but it didn't play out the same for black people or farmers. We knew agriculture because of slavery, but you know, there's a big lawsuit that, uh, you know, like the um, class action about how we were discriminated against there. So at every turn, our labor is not being compensated. So you don't have the generational wealth that you need to have. And I sh we should just layer on top of that. When you live under those stressful conditions for that long, that's why you see our, um, our health disparities are what they are from the stress that we live under. So yeah. a lot of people, like I don't, I'm not making a political statement, but that's why universal health care is a thing. Because when you look at COVID-19, people are losing their jobs. We still have to have a way for people to stay healthy because if people lose their jobs, lose their health care, they get sick and there's no treatment, that makes every, puts everybody else at risk. So all of these things, that's why I say it's a confluence of things that, have to come together for us to get where we want to go. Leon, we're going to go to you next, my friend. But two things I just want to share is that, uh, Vaughn, I think you bring up a great point. When I remember, uh, I used to go into schools. Remember, remember V Love, Vaughn? He would mm -hmm. teach an inner city school in LA. And I went there a couple of times and spoke. And it was amazing to hear about they've got research where when you're a young person and you're worried, like, how am I just going to get past the Crips and the blood to get to class? The stress that puts on your brain and your inability then to learn once you get in the classroom, it was stunning to see. And then Vaughn also talked about, you know, building generational wealth. And Scott, you and I have had this conversation in the past where, and I don't understand it as well as you do, Scott, but the way that the reservations were set up where it was like the feds somehow leased the land. And so it makes it very difficult for Native Americans to actually own their own home to build that generational wealth. And it's just, it's something in my opinion that that needs to change. So if you wanna get back to that guys, we can, but I wanna give the floor to Leon first and just Leon, if you wanna add, share your thoughts on what we're discussing. Oh, we kinda, we went in a couple of different directions here. Um, I, I guess from the outset, I, 
I think that the media um, plays a huge part in race relations in this country. And I think they, they um, are a negative integer in that, in, in that whole equation. I think that the more they hype racial disparities and race, racial tensions and things like that, the more at each other's throat we appear to be when we, a lot of times we're not. Um, I, I also sit and think about the history of this country. It's ugly and it's beautiful at the same time. Out of, out of the ugliness of our history, we got great minds like Clarence Thomas and Thurgood Marshall and Thomas Sowell. I mean, there's beauty in that struggle. And it wasn't, and, and black people, we, we've had it rough and, and there's no getting around that. I mean, <laughs> it's a hard road, but sometimes, sometimes you got to chuck your chin. Sometimes you got to look at the world for what it is. And this world is an animal. And if there are not people around you telling you, hey, you're going to get knocked down. You got to get back up. You are going to face this discrimination. You're going to face um, people calling your names. You're going to face people trying to hold you down. But the way you react, the way you get back up and get back out there is what's going to count. And I think if if America saw more of that than of the other, of the victim mentality, like we're we're like we're arguing against ourselves. I believe, like uh, I I totally get going to school. I I grew up in in New Orleans, Louisiana, most of my life in Catahoula Parish, but the the bulk of my school life in in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. So that whole uh, Crip blood, blood, Pyru, all of that is a, a very real thing for me. But one thing could, could remedy that. You know what that is? School choice. Yet we fight about it. Think about that. If my parents could send me to a school that where I didn't have to walk through a neighborhood and worry about if my jeans were too blue, or did they have the wrong tint of red or whatever? Or, or when I even when I get to class, um, whether or not Jerry is gonna, you know, hem me up in the bathroom or whatever. If you could take that off a kid's plate, that's a huge thing. I also wanna say that, and I, I don't wanna minimize anybody's experiences because I've had some rough experiences, even right here in the Fargo-Moorhead area. Um, and, and, I, and I hope we get a, a chance to talk about that. The fact of the matter is we, we don't talk. We talk at, we talk past, we uh, dismiss out of hand. Um, it, it's easy to do that. You see a badge, you know, oh, he's a cop, he's a Leo. So we're not gonna, you know, he's not gonna listen to us. So why should we, let's shout him down. One of the things that helps get us past that point is um, here's an example. First time I met Jesse Yonner, our, um, our sheriff here, uh, was at church. He came to, to my men's group and I got to meet the man. I got to meet a couple of his deputies. You see each other in that light, in the light of God, as children of Jesus, children of God, it, it does something to you. 
you hear a little bit of his life experience, you hear a little bit of my life experience, and then you're not so quick to hate, to yell, to shout down. I think we start there. This conversation, it, it's like the Rainbow Coalition up in here, you know? <laughs> but that's how you start conversations like that. And, and I didn't say it at the outset, but I, I'm like hardcore conservative. I'm like Reagan conservative, you know what I mean? It's, and, but I, I understand. I understand the anger. I understand the outrage. I, I'll, some of the things I don't understand is like the media spin on certain things. Give us the truth. Just give us the truth. We can digest it. We can process it. We can handle it. And then we have a conversation about it. Can I just so, jump in real quick and say that I've heard from almost every panelist that the discussion about our history and also about, you know, redlining, segregation, um, one thing that we can't do is force people to learn about the history of our people, whether it's indigenous or black. It, we, we can't force that as much as we want, because Leon is right. The way that we get past that fear of the other is to talk to each other like we're doing right now, to get to know each other, to be involved in each other's lives, to get to know each other's families. That's how you get past the otherness, but you can't force that. And right now we have a daunting task in front of us. The one person I really, really wanted to hear from tonight is Sheriff Johnner, because I think that in all of this, we haven't heard from law enforcement what they're going through, what they need, what happened here in Fargo, I'm sure has rocked people to their very core. Yep. Everybody that, that witnessed it said they never thought they would see something like that happen, but here we are. So what are we gonna do? How do we communicate with law enforcement what we need and then find out from them what their needs are and what they think that they can do in this moment? I'd really love to hear from the sheriff. So that I couldn't. Hey, Sheriff Johnner, I couldn't have let in any better than that. So, Leon, we do want you to share your story that you alluded to a moment ago. But, Sheriff Johnner, I do want to give you a chance. If you know, you've heard a lot, obviously. If you want to comment anything, um, like Cindy said, you know, what are you guys going through right now? What are some of the myths maybe that you're hearing in the media? The floor is yours, man. And by the way, people that are watching on Facebook Live, uh, Cass County Sheriff Johnner is joining us. He had to do it via phone because of some tech issue. But if we're, if you guys can just give me the thumbs up at one point when he starts talking to know that you can hear him okay. Uh, Sheriff John, the floor is yours. Sure, well, thanks. And I, I appreciate everyone's perspective on everything, of course. And and I, I, I heard one key word that I think is, is key to all this from a lot of different people or from a couple different people, and that was communication. Um, communication is huge. It's huge for many different reasons. It's huge for the fact that we both understand we're where both sides are coming from um, and that we can, you know, break down maybe some of those walls that it seems like there, there may be or some of the walls that I've heard talked about. But um, for me, really, uh, communication is a big thing. The other few things are uh, lack of information. I think there's some lack of information from both sides. Um, you know, proper information, much like Leon said, as to what's, what's really happening or transpiring. Um, 
and then patience. I mean, what was SUNY Hospital was what what we were kind of thinking of as far as law enforcement and and you know what what is really frustrating from the law enforcement side is and is the fact that so you know we had this this terrible incident that happened to to uh, Mr. Floyd and you know after the, after that incident occurred obviously there were arrests made with those officers and prior to any of that process taking place people you know are are upset and you know for me and on my perspective is we got to take time and we got to let the criminal justice system play out that's why we have it in place and people are rushing to judgment and and I get it I get that they're they're upset cuz they've seen this at different times but um, the only thing that happens when we don't know the outcome or wait for these things to play out is that a lot of other people become victims. And uh, much like what happened in Fargo is that, you know, I, there isn't any law enforcement, as you saw from, from the interviews that happened after, after Mr. Floyd's death, that disagreed that it, that it was, it wasn't, it wasn't right. It didn't look right. It, 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 it looked like those officers did something wrong. And and a lot of the individuals who have that take have the support of law enforcement, right? Um, very much so across the whole United States. But then when people started to do it, you know, started doing the rioting and the looting and things like that, that totally changes the message and the perspective of everything. I mean, here you had you had good steam going forward. You even had law enforcement saying, "Hey, this wasn't right." And then it turns to that these riots, you know, the protests turn into riots, and people start looting, and officers start getting hurt, and it changes the whole perspective. It changed from the mission going forward and how people were looking at things and looking at it to now you you've got two sides again. You've got people that are pushing their their you know what they want forward as the message, and then you have other people that don't want to see the rights anymore and they're and they're mad about it yeah and well, that's and that's where these messages get lost um and so i think really we just need to and i, I know it's hard to do because people have emotions in this but we got to let that that process play out it's going to play out and I, I don't know what the outcome is going to be but let's wait and see what the outcome is and then let's go from there now i'm not saying that there aren't some things that may not need to be changed certainly that that, that could be the case. And, and for me, I've had people reaching out and calling the sheriff's office to talk to me specifically. And when they call me, there's a misunderstanding. That's where I was going with that. A law enforcement, both on the law enforcement side and the, the protester side, a misunderstanding of what, you know, different information that law enforcement has as far as what numbers really show and what's really happening in our community. And when I'm talking about our community, I'm talking about Cass County. Right. And, and the, you know, and, and and so when for me it really it gets really frustrating, and and you, and you saw my press conference on Sunday morning. It gets really frustrating when you have a march that was peaceful earlier in the day, and people's voices are being heard, and everyone's listening to that, and 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 there's a lot of support to the nighttime where things turn, and there was definitely a group of people, and it wasn't all the protesters, of course, all of us know that there was a. A very large amount of protesters that were peaceful in there just to get their message across but it turned that evening and it and it turned violent and when it turns violent like that and other people start to become victims the main objective of law enforcement at that point is to protect life and, and to protect
And I can tell you that there's a large group in our community that are not going to stand for the, the riots. I've had thousands, and when I'm talking thousands, I'm talking into the highest 20 to 30,000 people that have reached out to me and said, this isn't right. I'm... And and so I'm, I, and, and everyone not on this phone call knows that, you know, as the sheriff, I'm voted into office for the people. I work directly for the people. There's no one that appoints me to this spot. There isn't a mayor. There isn't a commissioner. I get voted in by the people. And I've had a very strong statement from the people that have reached out to me since this has happened, saying, you know what, we don't want this violence in our community. And so, so when violence, when, vi when things turn violent, when these riots, that's when you start losing your cause. And so to go back to the original question of what do we do going forward, we need to communicate, we need to meet, we need to have open dialogue with, with both sides, and we need to understand where each side is coming from, and we need to figure out how can we work together to break down the misunderstanding of, of what each of these sides represent. Well, and I, I think, think there, is a, there is a lack of that. And I think that's the thing, and then I want to give you guys a chance to comment, but you know, as, as Sheriff John just referred to, it's like these, these sides, and that, I'm going to go back to what Leon said about the media. I mean, it was stunning, guys. Probably last week or in the last 10 days, I talked to a couple of people that I consider to be very well-educated, very knowledgeable, like been around. And even they were starting to have a race conversation over what was happening across America. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. please do, do not see this through the lens of race. Now, I think the George Floyd thing, that is about race in my opinion, but these rioters and looters and all that, that, that is an Antifa you know, these people are paid. Jesse, you've seen probably more information than I have. But I mean, they have command centers, the whole deal. And that's a capitalist versus fascist ideal that I think is happening and clashing right now in America. So I think it's, that's an important distinction. It goes back to what I, and Lynn, I don't want to speak for you, but I think the media is trying to create this, this race conversation, forgetting to say, look, there's people behind the scenes that are paying a lot of these people to go out and you've seen it in the USA Today. One guy in LA got busted and they're like, why'd you do this? He's like, it was for the money. So um, let's talk about re reforms, guys. Or anybody want to respond to what Sheriff Johnner said before we move on to some reform conversation? I want to respond to the sheriff. Um, I want to respond to a lot of things that have been said, actually. <laughs> so I wanted to push back on the sheriff a little bit because uh, understand people took to the streets and they were definitely right to. Like, I, uh, this, this whole wait for the system and the process to play out, uh, people, people were right to question the system, especially black Americans who have definitely been wronged by our criminal justice system forever. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, so I agree that the riots were absolutely uncalled for, but the protests were needed. There's no way around that. Uh, in my opinion, I believe the protests, and I, I believe the protests transcend race too, because like the issue of militarized policing it has like swept the country coast to coast. This is a problem that are, that Hispanics in LA are dealing with. This is the problem. Like we've seen, we've seen videos, horrific videos of even white people being killed and, and, and over-militarized responses. Uh, this has happened here in North Dakota. So it's like people are sick of it and they're right, they, they're right to feel that way. They're, they're definitely right to feel that way. And I, I think that needs to be said. But with that being said, I also want to give credit to what the sheriff said, because I'm one of those citizens, because I was out here on the street. I live in downtown Fargo when that went down. And you're absolutely right. I was on the street with my rifle because I was not going to let anybody burn me out of a home. 
I was not gonna let anybody put the life of my family at risk. And I even came across some of your sheriff's deputies and I explained it to them and they, they were very, very pleasant and understood. But uh, you're absolutely right that uh, Fargo, North Dakota is not gonna have a high tolerance for this at all. So we need law and order because it will get ugly because I don't wanna be out there with a gun. Sure. So let, let me, if I could just uh, piggyback a little bit. Uh, hey, sure. Second, we're gonna let Vaughn go and then we'll let you go, okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. in terms of what the, you know, I still, I also wanna respond to the sheriff. So I, I think we have to, uh, like the same um, thing you're asking of us in terms of being, you know, patient around the process, not to, uh, you know, sort of, you know, ride or get too much into our, to our emotions. Like I totally get that. So. I, I, but I want to just be careful and ask the same thing. So as black people, there are plenty of good white people around and you don't want us to treat you based on the, the few racist white people, right? So give us the same sort of understanding that, hey, like when something like this is, happens, which is one of many things that have happened over a course of years, don't focus so much on the reaction as much as why did this happen? And what are the conditions that support that thing happen? And let's all get to the root causes that force us not to have to riot or protest in the first place. And let's get to that. So there's a, some maturity and some understanding that has to happen on both sides. So Vaughn, just sure. before the sheriff responds, please, can you give us some examples of what do you mean by, by just for specifics, the root yeah. causes? Like, what are some of the things you can, hey, sheriff, if we can start to change some of these things, that would make a big impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, it's the things that we talked about in the beginning. Uh, when you look at, um, you know, like, let's take, for example, and, and again, my, my experiences are going to come from bigger cities. I, I, I don't, I, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm not speaking for how Fargo is. But let's take, for example, uh, how education funding happens. So like Leon touched on school choice, which school choice is, in my mind, is not going to solve it. But here, here's how education is funded. It's funded by property taxes. So if we go back to the historical redlining and we fund education based on, on property taxes, then who's gonna get the most money for education? That's systemic racism because you have a policy in place that unintentionally impacts a particular community worse than what you would want. So if you're thinking property taxes, yeah, that works if everybody's property is worth the same thing, but if you have segregation, and you have richer white communities because it, it's valuable to be white and you have poor black communities that no one wants to go in, then that means your property values are down, which means your property taxes are down, which means the way your education is funded is down. That's an example of institutional racism that we've been living with forever. So those are root causes that we need to fix that then allow us to all get a proper education, not only from a funding perspective, but how we teach our history to make sure that we're learning the right thing. So Cindy, yeah, you can't force somebody to learn your history, but what is citizenship? What is patriotism? There, it's not like we just sit back and, you know, yeah, we have free will, but if we want to perfect the union, perfect means action. That's a verb. And we got to get into that in order to fix what we have. Vaughn, I want to, I, I kind of want to push back a little bit and in the sense that like, I, I completely agree with you on redlining, but at the same time, there's two things we have to keep in mind. Uh, one is that we're on a forward trajectory. There's absolutely nothing anybody here can do what happened to change what happened yesterday, 20 or 30, 40 years ago. And that's why I believe that we have to actually have kind of like a dialogue on 
how we move forward. Because the only thing any of us could do here, period, is change the way we treat each other. That's that's all we can do. That's all we can hope people do and respond to. And I, I and the reason I say the redlining thing is a little tricky is because like one, neighborhoods change. Like even post redlining, you can look at uh South Central LA. It used to be a very black city. Now it's complete it's almost predominantly a gentrification. Yeah. I mean you could call it that. Uh, I think the gentrification thing is kind of a catch-22. Like you point to redlining and white flight, right? And and you're like, oh, well, all the white people left. That's why our communities went to crap. I don't I don't buy that personally. I think that's actually kind of poorly reflects on us. But nonetheless, even when you look at the gentrification, white people come back. Oh, now they're pricing us out of neighborhood. Damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you're white in this case, right? So my 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 goal is, we could play the blame game all day. And I, I actually do believe you are right in the sense that we're, we, like this, like white racism did create this problem. There's no way around it. That's the history of our country. But the thing about it is just saying that over and over again, isn't gonna fix anything either. I agree, but you the, can the, if the problem persists- historical events as you can. And it's, it's but if like the problem persists, if the problem persists, then there's something to be done. Like. Chicago is still segregated. There are housing covenants that still exist. So, so what I'm saying is that I just I'm giving that for context. I'm not saying that okay. you know people are actively redlining. I'm saying if we understand what the context is, then at least we know when we're setting policies moving forward that we don't make the same mistakes of the past. And, and I so I think even with the even with the even with the the communication that you guys have talked about, communication works best when we're working from the same set of facts. If we don't under, if you don't understand or trust my experience, like like my daughter grew up in a her first part of her life in a completely white environment, and her experience from her white peers is going to be different. So if you don't believe her sure. that her experience is different when you're communicating, then what is communication and what is the treatment? So there's like again, I, I just want to caution us not to simplify what, and just say I, we need to communicate. Communicate work. Communication works easier if we have some education and we have some trust about our own stories and not challenging what my experience is personally. I want to, I want to say something because I know you work on gun violence in Chicago and I commend you on that because that's something I'm not brave enough to do. So <laughs> I definitely commend you on that. Uh, I want to, I want, I, I want to point out something cause you brought up property values. And my thing about that is I, we all want safe neighborhoods yeah. and as, as much as uh, and as easy as it is to play the blame whitey game, the fact of the matter is if we literally start treating each other better, our property values will skyrocket. If we don't burn down our communities in riots, our property values will skyrocket. Those type of things are devastating to property value as well. So, the, so there is this, there's this historic harm of racism and then we have this perpetual cycle, which is poverty connected, which is all connected back to racism, but that has to stop as well. We have to stop but the cycle how, how of violence in our community. Happen? How, but how often does that happen? This is happening now based on a long history of oppression. So like, let's just how be careful what that- happen, of course? The, the, the riots that you're talking about, like that's not- no, a, it's I mean, not but like violence in Chicago isn't new, is it? Is like that it's not just what the riots. It's not, so, it's, and that's the problem. It's happening constantly in our inner cities. And yeah, and, and people are oppressed. People and people are oppressed constantly from line, too. From a law enforcement perspective, which is, I think, what is a fascinating conversation that we get to have today with a local law enforcement member, and that is, we are asking, or at least a lot of people across this country are asking, 
for the police to be abolished, for the police to be defunded. And if we're going to have that conversation, <laughs> I think we should be having it with the law enforcement in our communities because when I think about what's happening now, I look back to what happened at Standing Rock and Mr. Davis could comment on this, but we have a model. There were communities that even those of us who aren't Native American could look at the history of what's been done to Native Americans in this region and know it's not right. What has been done historically, the racism that has been experienced, the displacement, that, that was something that was just sitting there under the surface, ready to be exploited, if you will, by the organizers, by the activists that came to Standing Rock. And it triggered, it triggered communities that were there at when law enforcement showed up in the way that they did, in the militaristic way that they did. It triggered us. So we have a roadmap for what we are seeing right now. The same thing we're hearing in, in the news, we have a militaristic response from our law enforcement to peaceful protest in the streets. Same thing that we saw here in North Dakota. The question I have for law enforcement is, how do we deal with this unique moment where we have a standing rock type of situation extended all throughout our country and we have people calling for the defunding and the abolishment of law enforcement as we know it? Sheriff and I from the law enforcement person we have on the line. What was yours, Sheriff? Sure. So I'd like to I'd like to go back and answer. I tried to answer a question here a little while back, but I didn't, certainly don't want to talk over everyone because I think that's the problem uh, when we all talk about communication, right? If everyone talks at one time and talks over each other, then we we hear each other. A big part of communication is listening. So I was listening to you guys, but um, I want to go back to the original the original thing that I wanted to address, and that was simply that I wasn't saying that that people shouldn't, you know that they shouldn't have the right to protest. Certainly, I want everyone to have the right to express their First Amendment right. And you know what? Law enforcement in this area, at least in this area, I don't work in a different area of the country. I work here in Cass County, and that's where I'm the sheriff of, and I know a little area law enforcement here. If it's done peacefully, we're going to protect your, your right to do so. Um, that's all I was saying. What I was getting at was the rioting part and victimizing other people. And that, that's, what, that's where things change because I, I know for a fact the day that that, that march happened that uh, there was a lar large support for you guys' cause. And that drastically changed when things turned to the riot portion. That's all I was saying. And I first have knowledge of that because I've had, like I said, thousands of people reaching out to me and saying to me that once it turned to that, we were done. Their cause was lost. And I've heard that time and time again. That was the only thing I was bringing there. Now to go to your, your other question about the militarization. I'm not sure what you mean by the militarization, so if you can give me specific examples, I can speak to those. Well, um, what we did have here in North Dakota during Standing Rock and what we're seeing now is the use of less than lethal um, weapons, rubber bullets, uh, tear gas. We also have the deployment of things like Bearcats and what we saw in uh, Standing Rock, LRADs and all sorts of other equipment that um, you don't usually see unless there's some kind of a military operation or war going on in some other foreign country. Definitely don't expect sure. to see it on American soil. 
uh, police in riot gear, in the numbers that we've seen them. All of those things I think are, are jarring um, and, and frightening to Americans at a time when they, they're protesting peacefully for the most part. Because you see, Sheriff, just like what happened here in Fargo, everyone was on board with the protest until it turned violent, until it turned into looting and fires. So law enforcement is faced with the same situation every town in America, not just in Fargo, where a vast majority of the people that are protesting, they wanna protest what happened to George Floyd and other black people in custody. They don't wanna loot, they don't want to riot, but when they're met with a response from law enforcement in you know, full riot gear and all of these uh, less than lethal weapons, et cetera, it's uh, pretty scary. I I want to go ahead and throw some out. Uh, Cindy, hey, can, I, you, can I answer that or yeah, not? Yeah, Raheem, let's let the sheriff go real quick and then we'll open it up. Go ahead, sheriff. Sure. So I, I was out at Standing Rock for a few of the, three of the operations out there. And what I want everyone to understand is that my experience in law enforcement um, is, is extensive in um, hostile situations. And what I mean by that, not, not the protests, but we're talking about a different situation here. I spent 17 years on SWAT, and during my time on with Ritter Rally SWAT, there were five different situations where our team came under gunfire. Um, when I was down at Standing Rock, we had actionable intelligence that people were, I, I observed it with my own eyes, shooting an arrow with a bow towards law enforcement, okay? Um, so we're all on the same page here with, and this is where I think that information is wrong. Our body armor that we have won't stop an arrow, okay? It won't stop gunfire. When we were out there, we had information that people, and it was, confirmed information because I observed a lot of it that people had long rifles out there okay the time to run back and get that stuff isn't after someone got shot it's to protect ourselves going into that okay I you can't when people have those things and we have intelligence that people have those same embargo we saw people with guns on them Okay, we're not going to not bring the proper equipment there to defend ourselves. If you don't want us to bring that stuff, then you can't bring weapons to the riots. You can't bring it to the protests. Okay, if that doesn't happen, then you won't see the armament. But during the Fargo protests, a lot of officers got hit with rocks, bricks, and things of that nature. Less lethal um, stuff that you talked about, the exact impact rounds, which are 40 millimeter uh, rounds, um, they're not rubber bullets, they're exact impact, okay? There's actually sponge rounds. Um, and some of the other items used, like the OC and CS gas, um, not CN like I've heard, we don't use CN. Um, that stuff needed to be used because there was a legitimate law enforcement order that was given for people to disperse and they didn't abide by it. Had they abide by it, not, that stuff wouldn't have been used. So all... You know, and there was a 10-minute warning before any of that stuff was used. So I get what you're saying with the, the seeing the law enforcement or the militarized stuff on, on some of the things that you mentioned, but 
I don't know how you get around that when people are bringing weapons to these types of things. I mean, you guys, everyone knows there's been a lot of officers hurt during these riots. There's been officers killed during them. I do have one follow-up question for the uh, sheriff, if I could. Um, thank you very much for your answer. Now that people are calling for the defunding of police, uh, and there actually is a campaign right now calling eight can't wait. And it, I don't know if you've seen it, Sheriff, but it, it, this has eight different things that, that organizers across the country are asking. Uh, among them are to demilitarize police and to, you know, take away certain things that police use as tools in arrests, uh, including certain holds. Given the fact that what you've seen in the, the riots currently, the kinds of weapons that we've seen since Standing Rock and during these riots, and the level of um, weaponry that people are bringing out to these protests. Uh, how do you feel about defunding police, demilitarizing police, and is it possible to put the genie back in the bottle at this point in America or anywhere else in the world? Well, again, I mean, I, obviously the defunding of police is, in, in, my, in my opinion, is not going to work. I mean, we have, this country is found on rule of law. If we don't have that, um, there's, you know, people are going to get hurt. That's, that's why it's there. Um, so that, that's not going to work. The demilitarized thing, again, there's there's so many different things that people are lumping into the militarization. So I'm really looking for specifics on that. I mean, a, a less lethal um, exact impact round is not a militarization, um, you know, type of instrument. It's actually something used that is less than less and a lethal option, which is why it seems it's something to be more, you know, safer for the for anyone who's going to be put into that predicament. Um, the use of a barricade, in my opinion, is not is not militarized. It doesn't have any offensive weapons on it. It's it's a vehicle that's used for for protection and and evacuation, medical evacuations. Uh, during the Jason Mosier incident, we used the barricade to. Um, extract officer Jason Mosier out there and officers came under fire when they were trying to get to him. If we didn't have that piece of equipment, we would have never got to him to get him to the hospital. And we've used it in, in other circumstances to evacuate citizens out of possible areas. To me, those aren't militarization pieces of equipment. A tank, a tank in my opinion, would be a militarization um, or a military piece of equipment. We don't have something like that. Um, so, I, you know, I'm really looking for specifics. There's so many things I think that are probably being lumped into that. Uh, and, and so I'd be looking for specifics too. I, you, you actually answered all of the specifics that I had. I mean, a lot of the equipment that you mentioned, like Bearcats, and uh, th those are considered to be the militaristic uh, use of uh, police force. Uh, and I had never actually heard anyone in law enforcement describe it the way that you did, which is it, you don't consider that militaristic you consider like a tank and the kind of weapons that you described those uh that equipment having i guess it's um a difference of understanding of what the equipment that law enforcement use really is and how it's used so thank you for that explanation scott i see that you want to yeah, speak up which, which which goes back to my my thing of i think there's just a lot of misunderstanding and it comes down to communication right so if you and i got together and we sat down and i showed you a lot of those things I mean, it might might maybe change your perspective, but at least have an understanding of it and you get a perspective from our thing. So I think really 
everything that I've heard tonight really comes down to communication and all of us just being able to work together and communicate together and really understand both sides and not, not just on equipment. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about right now, but I'm talking about, you know, I, I do understand there's been people that have called here and, and had questions on certain things that law enforcement have done and, and they've been scared about a few things. And you know what, I don't, I don't like to hear that. I don't want people to be scared of, of, of things that we're doing or how we're interacting with people. I mean, our Cass County Sheriff's Office, and again, I'm speaking for our agency, our number one thing that we want to provide is public safety, and that's public safety to all. It's public safety to everyone that we serve. There's no race, gender, color in that at all. Um, and and that's really, you know, we're, we're in, in order to break down those barriers to make sure that people feel that way. Scott, I can see you're chomping at the bit. Mr. Davis. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, so, you know, going back to uh, uh, with Dapple, you know, the largest gathering ever in American history for tribal nations to, to come across this country and to gather in unity to protest a pipeline. That's really what, what was going on. But there, there was a lot more to that than just the pipeline. Uh, for me personally, as a, as a proud Santa Tribal member, um, I've seen the beauty uh, early on uh, for my people to gather in relationship to the earth, to the water, to, to just friendship, unity. It was like a big family reunion to me, and it was beautiful. And, and my family, my parents, we all just sat like we're in heaven, sitting there in the camp, uh, listening, watching, you know, my children play and run and, and just like, this is how it should be. And I kept telling myself, this is how it could be if we would decide through prayer, through understanding, through respect, to gather like this and not use a pipeline or something that's that's um, uh, negative or, or being forced to gather. We should be able to do this all the time, you know, in peace. But there was three things that happened early on, uh, Chris, and, and one was law enforcement. You know, when, when I communicated with uh, Chairman O'Shamble, who's, who's still a great friend of mine, always will be, I have much love for him and his family. Um, we communicated and we were worried about how, how is this going to be controlled because people will show up. Okay. So I brought down a Hardy patrol colonel or the, the county sheriff when we had a discussion about how we're going to keep the peace together. Because that was the rule. That was the, the initial rule from the chairman, from the tribe, and even more so uh, the real leaders of, of our nations. And so when Chairman O'Shamel invited me into the, um, our Grand Lodge that we constructed, and I'm very um, sensitive in sharing this, this, this story with you, but because it's very personal to me, was that in that lodge were two fires and, and there was leadership in there. And I'm not talking political leadership either. I'm talking the real leadership of Indian country and their elders, their veterans. In, 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 and I knew very, very uh, early on that these are these are the leaders, you know, the, of this camp. They're the ones who are going to be listened to. And in that, and in that long conversation that night, there were only three things that they talked about. Not once did they ever talk about the pipeline. They talked about three things. One was peace. Two was prayer. Three was courage. And that was it. That was that was the rule, you know, moving forward in trying to combat this pipeline combat this this you know this this thing that was coming to inundate our our our, uh, our tribe and our water and i took that to heart and i thought that's the rule i got to keep that in mind 
So when I'm back, you know, talking with leaders up here, the governor and, and law enforcement up here, I kept telling them this, let, let leadership evolve. The protest, the camp, it'll, it'll take care of itself. Leadership will emerge out of there. And it was. There was strong leadership in there. And this, this is why I'm going back to Fargo, because when I'm watching Fargo and I'm watching America, instantly I'm just like, I almost can, can almost predict what's going to happen. Yep. If they don't do this, if they don't do that, something's going to happen. And it's exactly what's going on. And so when you lose as your, as your group in Fargo or what have you, you, you come out of the gate peaceful, prayerful, united. You know, um, all that is, is, is in check. It is. But then sooner or later, somebody's going to show up. And here's what happened. Somebody shows up that you don't know. They pretend they're, they're on your side. Uh, they, 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 they get into the camp. They get into your, into your, uh, your protest, into your movement. Pretty soon, there's only one thing on their mind is to, 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 to stir trouble. And that's what, that's what we, we've seen. And so sooner or later, as the months grew, the camp grew, the camp grew, and all of a sudden it started getting violent. And we as negotiators, and this is, this is what I lived for, for almost over a year, every day. Never had a day off on this protest. Your protest for, for, for about a day or two. Mine was a year long, if not longer. Day in, day out, night after night. And this is what I lived through, is that every night when I would get a buzz on my phone, something's happened. You know, instant stress. You talked about stress, emotion, like somebody's gonna get hurt. You know, how, what do I need to do to intervene, to negotiate, you know, back off, negotiate. And this is where I think where the sheriff is coming from is that is that when you have this violence, when you have um, people on Facebook demanding war, violence, um, all these emotional, physical things that are going to go on, bring your, you know, bring your guns or whatever, those things are real. Make no doubt, those things are real. No matter how much people want to pretend that, that there aren't guns or, or knives involved, there is. There, there is. There will be. If you don't have the means to control the people who show up, and that's a tough call. That's a tough call to, to, to do. But what I'm saying is that if you, if your group has a way to be, to channel your, your energy, because believe me, I'm, I'm, I've been angry internally. My wife can attest to this, how angry I've been at certain things in America with this state. I've been very angry. But how do I channel that within myself to control my anger and to find peace in that through the means of discipline? education and respect. The greatest leaders I've seen in history, when you talk about you know, Nelson Mandela in, in your world, uh, Billy Frank in my world, um, there's so many peaceful, Martin Luther King, I mean, they're all out there. There's always three characteristics that I see of those changed leaders, is that they're disciplined, they're educated, and they're respectful. And I can bet any money they're grounded by, by spirituality, by, by God. They're peaceful. And when you do those things, when you act upon that, when you take the active in that they take the emotion out you're, you sooner or later they're going to listen to you but the minute i come after you crisper and, and point at you and, and put you on blast and and come at you with emotional sooner or later you're probably going to turn me off you're probably going to say you know what you know you're too much man i can't i you i can't i can't take it and i've been in many many you know i've been sitting here in my office in the capitol and i've been through many many committee hearings in this in this building many very emotional. I've been through many, many negotiations, billion-dollar negotiations, million-dollar negotiations between governments. And is there emotion? Absolutely. And there should be. But sooner or later, you got to channel that emotion and articulate 
to what you're meaning. Peaceful. If you're really about peace, channel that. Because right now, we all have, we all have negotiation power. We, we all have a seat at the table. But the minute somebody throws that rock, you know, throws, throw, you know, violence, whatever, it's over. Now you're forcing the Sheriff Johnner and everybody to take action, to gear up, to do whatever they got to do to protect. And that's, that's a tough call because I've been in law enforcement with those calls. I've been there. I've, I've, I've seen it. I, I've, I've counseled law enforcement, like, not now. Or maybe we should because there is, there is a threat of violence here. It's a tough call. And as soon as that, that call is made, then the narrative changes from the peaceful yeah. protest, the, the mission, you know, the, the Mr. Floyd, Dapple, that gets hijacked to now it's violence. And back to my brother, where you said about media, that, then, the, then the cameras are on the media. And that's what you see all day. You see people mad, you see people violent, you see them, you know, enough. And I'm thinking, where's the leadership in this? Where's the table? Where's the table? Where, where, where is the negotiation power? Maybe it's, maybe it's lost. Nobody can compromise anymore. But you, we all have that, that, right now we have that negotiation power. We have a seat at the table. But if we lose that through violence, Chris, and I'll just end this quickly, once you lose that to law enforcement, it's over. It's over. Well, and Scott, it's so interesting you bring that up because you know, here in Fargo, Vaughn, just to give you an example, we had an event, it was a Saturday, and it was gonna be this peaceful protest in Island Park, and they'd sat down with city leaders before the protest, and I, I don't know, Sheriff John, if you were a part of those conversations or not. So if I misrepresent something, let me know. But my understanding is there was conversations and it was like, hey guys, we're going to go from 10 until six. We're going to be in this confined area. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. We're all going to sing Kumbaya. And next thing you know, these people are, are in the middle of the street. They had no permit. They're blocking traffic. They're kneeling down in, in main thoroughfares here in our area. And, and what, as soon as they broke out, Scott, to go back to what you said, I knew right there, I was like, here's the pattern. The playbook's coming. This thing's about to go awry. And because things are such a tinderbox right now, nobody wanted to really put their foot down and go, whoa, we agreed to X. Now you're doing Y. We're, we're shutting this thing down because of the optics. The media would have been horrendous about it. Look what goes on in Fargo. So, uh, Leon, you've been kind of quiet, but I want to bring something up, guys, that Vaughn, I've had this conversation with you. Leon, I've had it with you. Scott, I've had it with you. And maybe this is super simple, but I do believe in Occam's razor that sometimes the simplest answer is the best. And that, you know, Vaughn, you alluded to, you know, root problems, root issues. And I will take full responsibility. All right. So before I say this, I will take full responsibility because I know what happened as black people were slaves with families. Scott Davis, I know we did to go into Native American families and what we did. All right. So. I'm, I'm owning that right now. But as Rakeem talked about, we can't change that, but we can change the future. And what I'm trying to grasp is that if you look at research, you've got a core family unit. The offspring is always more educated. I don't care about race. It's always you know wealthier. You can go up and down the metrics. And so my question is, and Leon, maybe we'll start with you, is, is how do we within the black community, and maybe it's the criminal justice thing, within the Native American community, increase that core family unit. Leanne, you wanna take that one? Okay. Um, <laughs> core family unit, African-American community. Uh, there's a couple of factors. 
first you have the the male, the provider, the the hunter gatherer type. You know, it, it, and it's it's primal. All of us want to do that. Like me, I got my family at home. The only thing I want to do is bring back a big sack of bacon, throw it on the table, <laughs> and say, "Have at it." That's <laughs> and that's just where I'm coming from. We got to be able to to provide. That means jobs. I told you earlier, busy hands or hands that are not picking up tools and shooting out Crenshaw and, you know, it. that's the first part of it. Second part of it is we got to um, teach each other or well, teach ourselves to appreciate and to love life. I think for far too long, and, and this kind of goes back in the history, but it, it's right now today, whenever we have like in New York City, more of our kids being aborted than being born, there's a problem. There, I mean, there, that, that is an utter lack of respect for life, for our progeny. White people don't have that problem. They put it right in our founding documents. You know, we, um, we secure this for ourselves and our progeny. You know, that's, that was their thing. We're doing this looking forward. We don't do that. We don't teach. We don't teach the wealth building um, that, that Vaughn talked about. We, we need to teach wealth in our community and how to build that generational wealth. You can't like waste your money on $200 tennis shoes. You know, you got, you got to build, man. You got to build. You got to build and can't burn things down. That's important. Well, and, and that too. But And I also want to say we have to be allowed to parent. One of the things, one of the things that happened to me here in Fargo, and and I used to be really bitter about it, but one of the things that happened to me right here in Fargo is um, I had social services in my life, unwarranted and um, unlawfully, and what they did to me and my family it caused irreparable damage to us. I think the government. You want to talk about your hands on the throats of African-American family, that's it. We got to kick social workers and governments out of our houses. We need to parent. That that uh, mom whose kid was at that um, four years ago, it's, it's kind of odd the way these things cycle. Like four years ago, you know, Michael Brown, big protests and riots and whatever, she saw her kid out there. He's like 14 years old. He's throwing rocks. He's got the little mask going. And she's like, hey, I, I, recognize, I recognize that kid. She runs out there. She snatches a knot in his ass, brings him home. Next thing she knows, she's got social workers at her door. Why? Great mom. That's what should happen. Dad should have been out there snatching a knot in his ass. Can I say that? I, my apologies. Did sure. not mean <laughs> We're on the internet, so yeah. <laughs> what, what what I'm uh, I guess what I'm saying is, one, us as a people, um, me included, we got to start valuing our families. We got to start valuing life. Uh, until we do that, we're gonna allow outside forces to pick us apart, and that's what's been happening. We are. Yeah, I I agree with that. Uh, let me I, let me chime in because. Uh, you know, I, I want to start getting to some of the solutions that uh, I think were requested as well. So um, just to give you guys a little bit more of a sense for, you know, what I do. So, you know, 
like I said, we, we really try to get to the people who are most vulnerable to gun violence. Some of the things we do, we've um, attracted both uh, private uh, ph philanthropic funds and public funds to subsidize job readiness training where we pay guys, you know, $300 a week to go through a two week job readiness training. We have monthly job uh, fairs to try to get guys jobs. One of the things that's really important to understand that, you know, for better or worse, you know, because of our history, a lot of times you'll find, you know, black men in the illegal economy because of lack of access to union jobs. There's some, you know, history around why that is. That being said, to move forward, we subsidize GED attainment. That way, once you have a GED, you can get a skilled trade, then you can get a job, you know, making 40 plus, then the incentive to be in the legal economy is better than being in an illegal economy. And so all of the work we do is around building those relationships, understanding the trauma that people have. So you got to have some patience and some relentlessness about sticking with them because, you know, we, I don't want to beat somebody up for how they're responding to trauma. But at the end of the day, it, we want them to have the strength and resilience and trust that the system is going to work for them this time in a way that it hasn't before, which is why we provide those subsidies to make it happen. So getting back to your point, uh, Chris, and, you know, we talked about, you know, systematically how families were broken up before, but it's a lot easier to be a parent when you're psychologically healthy, when you're financially healthy, and then you don't have stressors coming from other places because you got to have all of that capacity to give to your kids much easier to love your kids when you're in healthy as an individual and when you're healthy as a unit then you can then you should be able to raise your kids and it's all good but when that doesn't happen like leon said other forces get into your kids lives and nobody wants that so i think from that perspective we're all on the same page so i don't i'm not trying to come across as blaming and you know being a victim but i do want to understand the context so that i can give the right level of empathy to the people i'm working with now you know how I've lived my life. Like, I'm going to get mine, but I got to make sure I, I support the people that have been in a less fortunate situation than me to get them where they need to be. Hey, Leon, can I add one thing to context? Sure. If you don't mind, is that so he said it's easier to be a parent. He mentioned a bunch of things. I thought you were going to go somewhere, Vaughn, and you didn't. And I was going to say it's also a lot easier to be a parent when you're not in jail. And so, you know, you look at, and you guys correct my history here, but you know, in the 50s, black American families had a pretty good core family unit. Then the civil rights act voting happened. Yep. I think it's important people remember that blacks have only been given the right to vote since the mid 60s. I mean, that is not a long time in the history of this nation. And then my point is it seems, and again, correct my history, but it seems that after that happened, then you all of a sudden see these high incarceration rates of black American men and there goes the family unit. Let, let me let me answer that. Let me answer that. So in the 1950s, remember that was Jim Crow. So you had segregation. The benefit of segregation was that we had to fend for ourselves. So in our own communities, we owned our businesses. We owned our communities. You can even date that back to the 1920s when you had Tulsa and the Tulsa riots that ended up happening in Rosewood in Florida, where you had self-sustaining black communities. Once integration happened, then it's like we're competing in a way that we weren't before. And if, if, if there's discrimination that's happening, then we're going to lose that battle. So, of course, that's not really about all of a sudden that we don't care about our families. It's our, do we have access to jobs that we had before when we were more entrepreneurial and 
you know, fend it for ourselves. There was more entrepreneurs. Now, when you're working in white America, you still got low level jobs. Think about it. For black people, white women weren't necessarily staying at home. They were working as well. And you had barbershops, you had people who were seamstress, things that they did during slavery, they built businesses on that sort of thing. So, you know, just we just gotta know the history and context. It's not to me, it's not government that necessarily did that. The government came in to try to support it because they saw that people were gonna lose with integration in some ways. Chris, two, two days ago, I, I celebrated 14 years of sobriety. And uh, and I remember going back when you have these birthdays and I'm lucky I, I continue my daily sobriety, you know, in putting the check. But I remember those days very, very like they were yesterday, how angry I was. And I was reminded by my uncle that, you know, uh, in my early my sobriety, like, why, why are you always mad? How can we always anger? How can we always, always curse him? What are you so mad about? And I never knew. And once I figured it out through my own self-realization, through sobriety, through talking, to get my, my, uh, to get centered again as a man, as a, as a Native American Lakota man, to get centered, I finally figured out why I'm mad. You know, I was mad at a lot of things. My history, I was traumatized. There's a lot of things that I had to deal with before I could become this so-called warrior again, right? And, and, and that, that still continues. And that's what I see with a lot of the, the protests that are going on, not just with my people, but maybe perhaps with my, my, my brothers and sisters here on the phone too. It's not so much we're mad at the cops or the pipeline or whatever, there's other things we're mad about. And I think until we personally as men and perhaps as women too, you know, uh, we have to figure that out. Because if we don't figure that out, we're going to continue to be emotional, angry. And when that anger comes out, you know, again, it goes back to my, my articulation of, 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 your, of your, your change. We're not going to be able to change things if we're constantly emotional and angry at things. I was reminded by, by my good friend, John Eagle, who was a combat veteran uh, in the military, talking about courage and anger. He said, brother, he said, you can have courage, you can have bravery, you can have all that stuff without being angry. And I thought, wow, I can? So I don't have to be chest out, mad, you know, come at you uh, to have bravery or courage. But you got to center yourself. You know, you got to find that way. Even after DAPL was done, I was so traumatized by so many things. You know, um, I, I, I knew I wasn't right. I knew I wasn't healthy mentally. And I knew enough that, hey, to be a man, to be a good husband, to be a, a good leader, to be a good father, you know, to continue this work I'm doing, um, I got to be centered. I got to be centered because my fight is a, this fight that we're all in, call it a fight, whatever you want to call it. It's a marathon. And maybe hopefully I'll live to see a day where it's it changed, where it's maybe put to rest, I hope. But every day when I lace them up, that's, that's what I do. Day in, day out, uh, weekends, when I lace them up, but I got to be centered. And I go back to what Obama said with, with my brother's keeper initiative. You know, that resonated with me when we got to put our brothers in check at times. Like, you know, through my sobriety, because I love my, my brother and sister, sometimes I got to preach to them, like, hey, knock it off. You're better than that. Don't be drinking so much. You know, get, let's get some help. Let's, let's pick you up, dust you off, get you back where you need to be. I'll help you. I'll do whatever I can to help you. That, I need you, brother. I need you as a warrior to, to not just to fight, to, but to be there for your kids, to be there for your family, to provide. And I think we've, we've, we've kind of lost that through history. You know, when they put us on reservations, I'm sure from what I'm hearing from my, my black brothers here, it's the same thing, what, what government can do, isolate you, segregate you, all those things that we're, we're, we're dealing with. But 
there's ways you can you can you can do this you know there's ways that but you got to be centered you got to have balance you got to have the sobriety you got to put your emotion in the check and when you do people will listen so um there's a lot to chew on with all this and i think what's what's fascinating me and sheriff maybe we'll go to you in a moment but uh there hasn't been a lot of conversation about the the criminal justice system and that's where i you know thought we would go like Go ahead, Raheem. I have a, yeah, that I'm happy you brought that up because that was going to be my next thing or question I have for the sheriff, I guess. Uh, when you were talking earlier and it kind of stuck with me, I noticed you you referred to the protesters and their cause. And I, I'm going to assume you were being very lax with your language, but uh, I just wanted to be very clear that in my opinion, that the issue uh, that the protesters, especially our peaceful protesters, are pushing in the streets of America is the fact that the issue of police brutality is very much your problem and your cause. Like that has to, like one officer, and I know this as a fraternity man, one drunken bro makes a dumb decision and the whole frat looks bad. One bad officer does something stupid and the entire force look bad that's why you that's why fargo cops are paying for the stupidity of minneapolis police officers that's part of the reason so we need our sheriffs we need our police we are our, our police chiefs our police commissioners we need we need you guys to develop a zero tolerance type of approach to police brutality and that needs to happen like I don't know, 20 years ago. <laughs> so, so that's well past overdue. So it's very important to me and to, I, I will hope at this point, majority of the country that you understand that police brutality and making sure that this, this issue is dealt with and, and, and in a way that satisfies community stakeholders, that's a, that's, that should be the top of your agenda right now if you're a cop in America. Hey, Sheriff, there's a lot so, of people. Yeah, before right. Leon goes, like, I just want to, I, I want to ask the Sheriff, like, when he uses the language, your cause, does he really see it as not his cause? Like, so I think it's more than just police brutality. It's, do you, I mean, is it your cause that Black people are oppressed? Like, is it, like, if we're talking about perfecting our union, isn't it an, an American cause? I, I want, I want to hear what he has to say about that. Sheriff, you're up. Sure, so yeah, so I'm not sure. Um, and I, I, was I speaking with Raheem, Raheem, or who was I speaking with? Uh, it's Raheem and Vaughn that have that have. I mean, okay. but there was a lot of heads bobbing. Yes, when when Raheem was talking. Okay, so Vaughn, yeah, and and I'm not sure in what context I used your message. If that's how I said it, I. It was about the riot, like you were saying. Basically, like I want to be able to support your cause, meaning the peaceful protest yep. is your cause, and. Yep. And we're saying so a peaceful protest so is our cause versus your cause. That's what I want you yep, to respond yep. to. And I, and I didn't mean it like a yours or my type of thing. I meant just what you guys, what you or what the protesters were bringing that message forward, I guess, is what I was meaning. That I didn't, I wasn't saying that it wasn't everyone's cause and that we can't improve on or make better or try to rectify what happened. So that wasn't the case. Um, and I certainly agree with you that you, you made a very good point. One bad officer, right? Does the wrong thing and it and it and it affects our whole police in America. I mean, I would have never thought that uh, you know that decision. Well, I shouldn't say that, um, but that that decision would affect so many people uh, because it was it was that decision. But um, certainly, one person uh, making the wrong decision can, can 
expect that. So yeah, we but, need to look at mm -hmm. how can and, and, let, and, and let's and let's be clear that there's a lot of that happening. So it's not just one. But go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, so so sheriff, what I what I want to know is because I had a conversation earlier with one of the you know one party organizers last week, and so my question to them and kind of in this context of what they, Raheem and Vaughn are talking about is so. How do we, you know, you've got this conversation right now where it's F the police, F12. How do you get more black Americans to want to become law enforcement officers when that's a, a, a brand out there? And the person said to me, Chris, that's not my responsibility as a black American. That's the law enforcement responsibility to change that brand and make it, you know, different and more appealing. And I think that's, and Raheem and Vaughn, I don't know if I words in your mouth, that's kind of what I'm hearing from them as well is what's law enforcement going to do to help sort of change the brand and 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 make an impact in what's going on. My father was a police officer, by oh. the way. Just so you oh, know. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Thank you for that. Yep. So, yep. So going going back to um, Vaughn's Vaughn's uh, question and in his statements or whatever, I you know we have a lot of things at our office in place to to weed out those types of situations or bad situations or officers who are doing bad things. We have. It's called an Office of Professional Standards in place, um, where we certainly investigate any allegations that are made against any of our officers, and and so that that really is a process that you know we have one officer who, who investigates that, and that, that person answers to me, and then when it, depending on what those findings are, that can then also get pushed on to the uh, North Dakota Post Board. Um, North Dakota Post Board is a board that oversees all of our police officers in North Dakota, their license and, mm -hmm. and any ethical violations that they commit. Um, I, I sit on that board. The Attorney General um, appointed me to that board. So when we hear um, quarterly, we hear uh, ethical violations that officers, um, you know, have or conduct in the state of North Dakota. So I feel like there's some of those those things in place. We have a use of force committee at our agency for any use of force. If it's, you know, a person is complaining of injury, um, if there's a visible injury, if we deploy but can I... a taser, OC, anything like that, that gets investigated through our through our office as well. And so do I think that's going to catch everything bad? No. I mean, obviously in this instance, um, you know, a couple of those officers have some, some, some of these things that that were already documented. They had gone through some of these processes. And so then the question becomes, you know, how are they still out there? And, and that's yes. something that um, Minneapolis police have to answer. But Cheryl, Cheryl, let me ask you this, and, and guys, we just want to jump in, but I think, and again, Vaughn and, and Raheem, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I, what I'm hearing from people is they want to see accountability. And a perfect example is, you know, the Philando Castillo situation. Now that went through the judicial process, he was exonerated through that. I don't fully understand use of force laws within the department. So I, I understand that. And, you know, and Vaughn, I don't know if you remember this, but there's the Stanford prison experiment where people take on an authority identity so quickly. And when you see, again, what appears to the public sheriffs, again, I'm not an attorney, so help educate me. But when you yep. see a situations where cops are doing things that you think most people would be, I mean, even Derek Chauvin, it was like, why was that dude still walking around? If that was me, I would have been in cuffs, right? And so, so people see that and they're like, where's the accountability? And then when, when you don't see accountability and you understand the Stanford prison experiment and how people can take on authority, it's like, just as humans, you always want to sort of push the envelope. Like, hey man, didn't get accountable for that one. What up? 
So, so how do you, and guys, am I missing anything there? Anyway? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I think it's, it's, it's the system not working for you, yet we have to be patient and allow the system to play out, knowing historically that it hasn't. That's, that's a lot to ask. Not, but, we got to do it, but that's so a lot to ask. Now with the sheriff, your sheriff, what would you suggest? I'm like, hey, Chris, yeah. you know, and again, if I'm missing something on these um, exonerations of the gentleman that shot Philando, you know, school me up. But any suggestions or thoughts on that? Cargo PD should be here. Uh, I, I, I just. I, hey, um, can you share your story in one second after the sheriff, please? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are you sure, buddy? All right. Go ahead, Sheriff. It's hard for me to to comment on all those only because I'm not I'm not familiar with all the details of them. I mean, I know the general situation, um, but I'm not familiar with all all the details. In it. And of course, I didn't sit through the the court proceedings or the court cases. Right. Um, and in each each uh, agency, obviously, you know, you like for us, we follow obviously federal law, state law, and then in addition to that, we have our own policies and guidelines that we have here, which are even more restrictive usually. And state law and federal law, so we can try to uh, prohibit some of that. And, and very much like you said, um, use of force becomes it, it's a it's it's there's a lot of circumstances that that govern use of force. I mean, it could be how how fast the situation is evolving. It can be re in relation to size of people. That there's just so many different factors. And without sitting in on those, I don't know. I don't know where where it went wrong through the court process. Of course, as you as we all know, you know, people get different attorneys and some of it comes down to um, attorneys and how they're able to present their cases and, and you know, the, what judges are allowing in the, in the court hearings and stuff. So I, I don't, I can't comment on all those specifically right. just because I don't know. I have an accountability certainly, question. Um, well, Chef, uh, Raheem's got a, a question. Go ahead, Raheem. I got an accountability yeah. question that I definitely believe you should know a lot about. So you're breaking down earlier this internal review process. And I guess my question is, where exactly does citizen or civilian oversight become a part of an internal police investigation? Because I think a lot of people would like to see something like that. And I want to know if that's already in place in North Dakota. Sure. So um, as far as our agency, and it's not, each agency has their, I mean, it's up to them if they have that. That's not something right now that's that's regulated by law that people have, you know, that agencies have to have that. Um, like I was mentioning to you, as far as like the process for us, um, our agency investigates it, then it comes up to me. And then I make my determination on the disciplinary of it. But from there, it gets forward on to the uh, post board, like I was telling you, and on the post board, there is a civilian oversight on that. Um, it's okay. made up of law enforcement officers and civilian uh, staff. So there is oversight um, through the North Dakota post board in North Dakota. Thank you. So, of course, it's going to depend on what, what the circumstance was. If, I mean, if it's as serious as we're talking, then definitely it's going to make it to that point, to that, to that post board, um, where it is going to have civilian oversight. Now, if you're asking me as far as the you know, the, the sheriff's office to put a, some sort of a, a board in place to oversight of the sheriff's office. I think you would have to be, I think you'd have to talk to the 180,000 or 185,000 um, citizens that we have in Cass County, because really they're my oversight, you know, and they elect me every four years. I don't think they'd want to have a separate entity come in and govern an elected official of you know, oh, that's not that's not at all what I was suggesting. I was just literally talking about like the internal uh, 
internal issue. Like you have a citizen accuse a cop of wrongdoing. I was like, at what point does citizen civilian oversight? Because basically the impression in the country is that, you know, every police department or sheriff's office is kind of their own little good old boys club that are going to protect each other. So the fact, so to a lot of uh, police reform advocates, when civilian oversight isn't there, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a red flag. That's, that's what I was pointing out. I'm not trying to say civilians should be able to fire you. I just think uh, when police are accused of wrongdoings, we, there should be civilians on that decide how severe what happened is. Leon, I know you wanted to say something, my friend. Well, I just wanted to, um, I'm going to backtrack just a bit. I, I, and I think that the, uh, the Fargo Police Department should be here and West Fargo should be here because those uh, negative interactions that, that, that um, minorities have and, and so many of us share, um, most of the time, I, I'm, I'm probably going to, uh, it's probably a safe bet to say the majority of the time that they are with uh, police, the, the, the police department and not the sheriff's department. And that being said, we're talking about um, like how, how do we get our young men and women to uh, gravitate toward law enforcement? Well, like you have certain things that happen in your life that are traumatic. Like, I, uh, Chris, you know this. I have, I have um, law, uh, friends in law enforcement from here to Kansas City to uh, uh, Minneapolis um, and anywhere in between. But the, the incidents that stick in my head are the bad ones. And I've had many interactions with, uh, with law enforcement, the vast majority of them good. But again, it's those negative impacts, those negative impressions that leave a lasting impression. And then what does that do to the kids that see their father or their mom emasculated or mistreated or um, like your authority has been usurped and, and that sort of thing? What does it do to those kids? I think the conversation that we need to have, I mean, and it's great to like hand out stickers to, to, to kids and, and, and whatnot, but all that goes in the bank. And then you see the media overhype situations, obviously. You see something like Philando Castile happen, and your kid is sitting there watching. Or take me as a kid, and I see Rodney King and what happened to him. And my dad's sitting there shaking his head and going, not this crap again. And then fast forward to Philando Castile. And then fast forward again to... Um, 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 uh, Gray up in uh, New Pretty York, great. Eric Gray, yeah, Pretty and great. and then fast forward again to you know what we're dealing with now, and you're like, wow, this <laughs> nothing's getting better, man. And so all of that's going on in your head, and then to me, and I support law enforcement. I'm I'm one of those guys with the with the flag with the blue line on my truck. I'm I'm one of those dudes. But to me, when people see that time and time again, you start to ask yourself, what, what's going on? A citizen review panel, panel, in my opinion, would give everybody pause. If, 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 if police officers, if, if, if law enforcement knew that, hey, if, if there is a use of force or a, a misuse of force, um, you know, uh, there's going to be a citizen review panel and they're going to sit and judge me looking at it from that side. 
and not from the blue line side exactly then there there might be some accountability i uh, myself i went through those processes and it was always the same answer always the same um use of force is uh justified blah 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 this and that the only way you get any type of justice is maybe you know you get some charges thrown in like resistant arrest or or whatever and then you go to a jury and then the jury looks at it and they go wait that's crap and they throw it out, but then you're still left with the trauma, you know, and that's a lot. And I, I don't mean to put that on uh, Sheriff John or I, I would really like a Fargo police department or uh, a representative from one of those departments to be here, you know? I, yeah. I want to kind of, if I could just, just real quick, second, just add to a couple of things I said. Number one, I, uh, I, I certainly would welcome anyone at any point to come in and and look at our process. I feel like it's very solid. We've we've um, we've disciplined a lot of our officers, and and um, I would I would welcome anyone to come in and look at that. And I'm not I'm not I don't think that you guys are are, are specifically pointing at me or anything. I just I feel like um, our process is, is is very good, and I certainly get what you're saying. I think where the where the where it might become a little bit tough would maybe be that that person that was the civilian, and I think it could certainly it's certainly possible would have the training or at least go through a use of force training because he certainly wouldn't want someone to come in and review that if they didn't know the type of training that the law enforcement officer went through you know and, and what the state law says because then i mean that would be like me going in and evaluating um uh, you know a, a surgical procedure that a doctor does that i don't have any information on or know what they do so but but i certainly think that if we could get to the point where those were like you were saying, someone would be able to um, have that knowledge and understand, you know, the use of force, the state laws, the laws on it, and and how it was taught at that department. I think that it could be useful. So I want to I want to throw some out there. Uh, I like what you said, Sheriff. Um, I I would definitely, and once we get off of here, I'll reach out to your office because I would actually like to see this process. I'm very interested in seeing this process because I live here, and also. Um, I just want you to know that I don't think you're a bad person. Like I, I, I have no allegations against you. I think I have no reason to think ill will of you uh, for all intents and purposes. I think you are probably a good guy, but the issue is, I think, I don't know it. And that's the issue of transparency. So you are an elected official, but that also means you have a principal agent problem, which means as an elected official, somebody who's probably want to be reelected, you may, and I don't think you would do this, I don't know, but I'm just saying someone in your position, maybe a sheriff far down the road, or maybe a sheriff in the distant past, could in theory have a whole lot of incentive to hide bad things from the department because it will reflect poorly on you. So that's kind of my issue with that process of you getting to determine what goes up the flagpole. Um, that, that's all I wanted to say about that. All right, guys, just for respect of time, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to mention one yeah. thing with regard to the, the whole um, responsibility and the family thing uh, that, that most of the gentlemen were talking about earlier. One of the things that struck me about uh, what happened at Standing Rock was that a lot of people came together uh, in support of Native Americans' rights to their resources, and they inadvertently got caught up in clashes with the police where people were seriously injured. That's happening again today. 
And a lot of those people are young people, not just in college anymore, which I mean, I think we're used to seeing college students that are part of campaigns and uh, ideologies or groups that come out of their college setting, but now even high school and middle school students that are being used as battering rams that are being put into very dangerous situations where they are expected to get arrested, where they are expected to, um, you know, lock arms with other protesters, and they've been put through direct action training, and they have been uh, talked to about uh, Antifa-like tactics that are going to be taking place that they have to be on board with, and. To me, as a parent, as a, a sister, I've watched these protests happen throughout uh, the country. My little brother in Des Moines, Iowa, was in a protest where uh, a woman, a young woman, was shot and killed by other protesters that brought guns. And we were having a discussion with him, trying to tell him about how dangerous it was to go out and put yourself in the middle of what's happening in America. And as a, as a young Latino man, he was saying, I have to be on the right side of history right now. I have to go join my brothers and sisters and, and protest the killing of people of color by police. And I understand that, but as a parent and as a mother, there's a part of me that's very angry about the organizing that is putting young people at risk, black and brown bodies at risk, not just of getting arrested, but of being seriously injured or killed in what is part of a much larger campaign that really doesn't have anything to do with the root problems of what's happening yeah. to black and brown families in our community, especially not right here in Fargo-Moorhead. And I just wanted to say that because I think that this is an issue that affects law enforcement and communities of color and white communities equally. I mean, here's the thing, guys. There's also been some great media footage out there where you've got law enforcement and black Americans and brown Americans and native, I mean, hugging at some of these protests. And then what happens is, as Jesse alluded to and, and Cindy, where, and Cindy's done a lot of homework on this and so have I as of late, where I mean, people are being paid to cause a ruckus, to get the footage, to go to media, Scott, you know this from Dapple, and then media I, runs with that stuff. I, I had first direct, very direct contact with people who Cindy's referring to, and I was with, with one of the leaders of the protest. We sat on the bridge, and it was time to go home. You know, the chairman was saying that everybody in leadership around the state of America was saying it's time to go home now. And so we're trying to get everybody to leave, you know, fight another day, whatever you want to say, clean this place up. And one of the leaders came up to me and, and she got next to me and um, and she, she, she kind of nudged me. She said, you see these, these young boys behind me? And I looked back and I said, yeah, they will die for this, this cause. And I looked at her like, what? And then Chris, I tell you, if you've ever been around a, an evil spirit, I have. And I tell you what, the back of my hair, the back of my neck was just like, like this, like, man, this is evil. How dare yeah. you brainwash these young gentlemen back here who are like like nephews to me into dying? And I kept thinking, like, you're, you're brainwashing these young folks. How dare you? Am I you're cutting them off or you're using some type of influence 
and again, I go back to parents. As, as Cindy said, as a parent that drives you, it, it's like, where's your data? It's like, young, young man, where's your data? Let me talk to your folks. And sometimes they're not around. You, you, you know that. As minorities, we know that. But that's what goes on. You know, heaven forbid that, that, that this lady would, would, you know, get arrested or, or so-called die for the cause. She wouldn't do that. How, no, she wouldn't. But, but my point, Scott, but, like, but, with, but throw with them this, into the fire. Yeah, go right ahead. Somebody with this group, this group here, very well educated. And if I start dropping names like the Sunshine Movement and some of those behind the scenes Antifa groups, I'm assuming many of you aren't even familiar. I mean, do, does everyone here know the Sunshine Movement? Probably never, have you heard of it? Probably not. I mean, guys, you do your homework on that. What these people are doing to co-op young people, as Cindy alluded to, and my problem is that you've got people being paid to create hysteria, and then it gets conflated with this race situation. And that's why I've been saying this is not about race. Yes, the George Floyd piece, you can say, is about race. I get that. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation. The riots, the violence that Jesse's talking about going, hey, look, I got to show up there and protect myself because I don't know who's going to be packing heat. We had a dude in Fargo with a Glock 26 and multiple rounds of ammunition. So I don't blame a law enforcement guy. I want to have some protective gear, knowing that there's some somebody there that's got a Glock 26 and who knows what he's going to do with it. So all I'm saying is that I'm asking us as who we are, and I love this conversation, but to, to help people realize that, that do not conflate this hysteria and this 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 looting and the stuff that's happening with real equal justice for all and making a more perfect union. I want to respect everybody's time. If you want, let's just give you 30 to 60 seconds for a final statement. And Jesse, just because you're on the phone, I'm going to start with you, sir. Um, but the floor is yours for 30 to 60 for a final word, Jesse. Sure. Well, first of all, I, I do really appreciate everyone's comments in this in this conversation. I mean, obviously, we have to uh, communicate much like I said and break down some of these these barriers these walls and we have to understand each other and see where each person is coming from and if we don't do that we can't move forward I um, I think it was Rahim you would probably ask if you could come in and see uh, the stuff that I had available as far as the way that we do or hold our officers or our deputies I should say accountable and I would love to show you that so you're welcome any of you are welcome to come to the sheriff's office at any point and, uh, and visit with me and I'll certainly would be happy because I'm proud of the way that we, we do it to, to show you that. But you know what, moving forward, we just gotta make sure that we can keep these dialogues open and uh, figure out how um, we can work through some of these issues that were brought up and, and some of the good ones that you guys brought about, you know, making sure that people understand how we're holding uh, officers accountable um, who may be not doing the right things. Amen. So again, I, I, I appreciate Chris having me on there. I got an opportunity to work with with Scott a lot out at Dapple, and and uh, you know if we had a lot of people like him trying to trying to communicate back and forth. We would be really successful. So and thanks I, again to all of you guys for the the conversation. And that's exactly it. I Scott Scott. I mean, I was there for a short amount of time, but the the what was going on initially, you could tell this was real, and it was great to see all these Native American tribes, you know, come together. And then all of a sudden, like you mentioned, these these bad apples got in, and the thing just spun out of control. So again, guys, 30, 60 seconds, last word. Scott, we'll go to you, sir. Sure. You know, here in North Dakota, and, I, and I've been through a lot of these negotiation compromises, uh, there is no fight here in North Dakota. There is no fight here in North Dakota. But what is here, and you see it through Fargo, through my boss, the governor, what is here, there is a table. There is a table of communication. 
There is a table of listening. There is a table of communication. There is a table of compromise. There's a table of understanding. There's a table of respect. There is no fight here, but there is this table that is set that is an invitation from the governor, from leadership in North Dakota that is here. And I would engage that. Center yourself, whoever is upset about certain things in this state, this world, this cities, whatever have you, center yourself, come to the table, articulate your message, and I guarantee you people will listen. And eventually through patience and through, 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 um, through articulation, you're going to find good results. You will find good results, I can assure you, because I've been through 11 years doing this job. So that's what I have, Chris, for tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Cindy, you're up. Thank you very much uh, to everyone that's been on the panel. I especially want to thank um, the sheriff for joining us during this conversation. I think that um, for me as a journalist, uh, watching everything unfold, uh, the most important thing that I believe needs to happen is that we all need to become more aware of the outside forces, the, 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 the groups, the organizations, the people that are indoctrinating and instigating violence, hatred, division into our communities that we are unaware of. I witnessed it happen at Standing Rock. I saw the heartbreaking results of how it affected people's lives, especially the very people of color it was supposed to be protecting. And I don't want to see that happen again to innocent people. My heart breaks for the communities in Minneapolis and for what happened here in Fargo. Uh, I think that there is a lot of goodwill, both on the part of the police depart departments and law enforcement, as well as in our local communities to ensure that we have racial equality, that we have police accountability, and that we don't allow the things that happened to George Floyd to happen here in Fargo-Moorhead, at least not going forward. But I also think that we have to be super vigilant of any outside forces that are coming here to disrupt the harmony and the unity that we can have. Raheem. Well, thanks for having me here. Um, I want to say uh, first and foremost, thanks, Vaughn, for what you're doing out there in Chicago. I think that's extremely admirable. Uh, I will also thank you, Cindy, for everything you've done for me. Uh, my, 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 my parting thoughts is that I just, I don't, and I'm just speaking from the soul here, the heart. It's like I'm really just over the racial tribalism. Um, I, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight white people. I don't want to fight other black people. I don't want to fight Mexicans. I don't. I don't want to fight Latino, Hispanic, Asian. I don't want to fight people anymore. I just want to enjoy my country. And when I see these things happening, it, it honestly, it just is just it's soul crushing. I don't want to see. I don't want to see Chicago burn. I don't want to see Minneapolis burn. I don't want to see Fargo destroyed. It's like these are our communities and. Although our past is extraordinarily turbulent in one way or another, we build them together. And I don't want to see them destroyed. And it, and it breaks my heart. I don't have all the answers. No, I don't think anybody here does. But as we move forward, I just want to emphasize the only thing we can really do is change the way we treat each other. Thanks, Raheem. Leon. Thanks for everyone being here. It's like I said, it's like the Rainbow Coalition. It's it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> and I think we need more of this and less of the other. I, I think we need to sometimes just turn that TV off. It's called an idiot box for a reason. <laughs> yeah, and you can see that playing out every day. 
I, I would encourage people, uh, instead of finding so much that we hate about America, do what I do. Wake up in the morning, thank God for your family. Thank God you got a, a job to go to. Thank God that you have a, a brain and two hands and feet that can get you places. Do like uh, Bond says, you know, get out there and get it. It is the greatest feeling on this planet achievement and as long as you're you're going forward and you're attempting to achieve there is nothing better and that's what this country was founded on and i think that that is the unified message we need going forward not all all of this division not all of this racial this and um, like raheem said you know i don't i don't want to fight i don't want to fight i love this country it's awesome let's let's pull it together thanks leon vaughn so, uh, you know, in, in the same spirit, I, you know, I, I, you know, I do want to fight. I want to fight for our country and I want to fight for it to be the perfect union that we all want it to be. There are ideals that we put out there and set forth as a country. And I'm going to keep fighting until all of us can enjoy that uh, the way it was meant to be. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not against anybody. I'm for everybody, but I'm especially for those who have been disenfranchised and I want to offer them the support and empathy and understanding they need to get on their feet so that they can feel good and feel motivated and feel confident that the systems in our country are gonna support them in getting where they need to go. Everybody that has been successful has had some kind of helping hand from somebody. And I just want this to be our challenge as Americans, not you know one group's problem versus another because you know we're all Americans and we all have to see each other as such. And you know, we have to understand vulnerability and we have to understand our history and we have to understand how trauma affects us. And that, that understanding and empathy is extremely important uh, to us getting where we want to go. And I just, I think the last thing I want to say is I want us to really be focused on root causes. I don't want us to be focused too much on symptoms. We, we, we had a lot of conversation about how people were reacting and the riots and all of that. Like we can, if we focus on the root causes, then those things just won't happen because we will wake up every day you know, with something to live for, knowing that we don't have to worry about the things that ultimately lead to, to the riots. So, um, you know, I, I can always, I'm always gonna be hopeful because I know I'm in God's will doing what he wants me to do on this earth. I'm gonna move the needle to the extent that I can while I'm alive. And, you know, hopefully, you know, folks are joining that effort to, to perfect our union. You can Thank say you for I'm, having me. Well, you can say it. I'm gonna get mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, to all y'all, I mean, I just, I just, Sitting here tonight, I want you to know how much I love you guys. It was just such a great conversation to sit here and just listen and have Sheriff Johnner, thank you so much for being a part of this. I mean, you had, you know, seven people that were never a part of law enforcement and you joined in and shared your point of view. And I'm just so, so grateful for you to have the courage to do that and for all of us to have this conversation from so many different perspectives. And Vaughn, you use one of the key words that I want to talk about is, you know, I just look, I haven't walked in a black person's shoes. I haven't walked in a Native American shoes, a Latin American, but, but I just wish we could just go, you know what? You're an American, I'm an American. I love you, I love this country and let's go make it equal for all. I mean, Vaughn, you know, the thing that, that I was gonna say earlier tonight, and I'm only saying this between Vaughn and I because we've been there, but like the thing I took away from that is every single one of us are like, look, man, just let me lace up the cleats, but make the rules the same for everybody. If we mm -hmm. do that, mm -hmm everyone's going to be happy. And right now there's this, you know, some people feel like, Hey, it, it, it's not the same rules for everybody. So 
to me, that would be a more perfect union is having the same rules. We all can lace the cleats up and let's go uh, high tide raises all shifts. So I, I hope that we can do this again in the future because I think it was valuable for everyone to at least get something out of this tonight, I hope. Okay, good. So Jesse, you- I, I learned a lot about Fargo. <laughs> Our impatience. <laughs> and, and I came Come up with, visit. and we all got a new nickname for Chris. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Sarah? I'm just, I'm sending you my contact information with my phone number. If you could, I don't have everyone's email that we, that was on this visit. So you got it. I'll make sure I get it to them. And thank you so much for that. And um, again, I love you guys. Thanks for the conversation. We will do this again in the future. And um, just keep being being a force for good. So God bless you. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon, okay? Bye. Ciao.